0: We all think about what we eat. We plan our meals or count carbs or do any number of other things when it comes to what we put in our bodies. But do you ever think about the flavor of what you consume? Sure you do. What we eat or drink either tastes good or it doesn't. In fact, taste is the number one consideration in what we consume. Yet there's more to it than just like or dislike. And there's even a whole industry dedicated to it. Flavor is memory. Flavor is feeling. Flavor is science. Flavor is art. Flavor is Fona. Welcome to Fona's Flavor University podcast, where we explore the science, artistry, and industry behind flavor. Today, we'll be talking once again to Pamela Oscarson, Consumer Insights Manager, and Jennifer Howell, our Director of Regulatory Innovation. We'll be discussing one topic from two sides of the aisle, that being clean label. Hi, guys. How's it going?
1: Hi, Corey. Hey, Corey.
0: All right. So glad to have you guys back today. This is going to be a great conversation that we're going to start. But to get started, like we always do, let's do some introductions. Pamela, go ahead and kick us off, please.
2: Sure. So I'm Pamela Oscarson. I am the Consumer Insights Manager at Fona. And my job is to put the consumer lens on all of the different categories that we cover. So primarily through surveys and focus groups and lots of research. And you previously, um, hopefully listened to my podcast around Flavor Radar.
1: And Jen? Awesome. I am Jennifer Howell, Director of Regulatory Innovation. Um, Within regulatory at FONA, we don't just tell you what the problems are with the claims that you're making, but we hope to find solutions for you as well. So I'm excited to be here today to kind of reflect on the challenges of being a food company, responding to the consumer information that Pamela will be sharing.
0: So let's start with the basics. I'm talking ground level. I know nothing about clean label, I've done a little bit of research, a little bit of reading, but honestly, when I heard of clean label, I just thought of like labels hanging out on the laundry to dry. I mean, just flapping in the breeze of all the little, you know, oh, this contains sunflower seeds. Oh, that's so nice. But why don't you guys tell me, like, give me a definition, something I can work with for clean label.
1: To me, the clean label movement started even even 10 years ago, maybe even more. It's um, driven by a desire of consumers to make better choices for themselves and for their for their families. Um, And the interesting part is how they, Decided to identify how to make those better choices. So for instance, they wanted to be able to see whether a product is gluten-free. They wanted to see whether or not they understood the ingredients that they are seeing in their food or they want a simpler food. And over the past 10 years, it's evolved significantly into, I would say, getting to know each segment even better. So what is the consumer expectation in dairy, for instance, versus the consumer expectation in candy. And so what we've been doing is trying to identify with additional granules, what clean label means to each consumer in each segment.
2: True. Jen's right. We've been tracking clean label before the term was actually coined clean label because to us, it's essentially what is health and wellness, right? Because all of those factors kind of come in and help consumers decide what products they want to purchase. And that goes down to claims and ultimately taste and flavor and where you find it on the label.
0: So you guys were clean label before it was cool.
1: Oh, for sure. Phono was definitely clean label before it was cool.
0: Now, I didn't want to set you guys up for any kind of failure here, but your definitions are widely accepted throughout the industry. Because I'm reading through some of our survey material here, and it basically says that there's no legal definition for clean. So if that's, you know, if that's the case, are these more widely accepted concepts?
1: I, that is one of the most fascinating parts about what has happened within this landscape is that when it started evolving, consumers hadn't even heard of the word clean. It was only coming from food manufacturers. It was driven originally by um, the personal products industry where this hit first. Um, conscious consumerism was always a, a big driver from the 60s up until recently in consumer products. And as it started transitioning into human food, that the concept of a clean product had not yet been explored within the food arena. So the first thing you started doing within this area is the food company started really defining what clean meant to their ingredient or what that clean meant to their product. And then consumers would agree or disagree. And there was a lot of trial and error and, and a lot of confusion about what it meant. And so a lot of what we've been trying to do is trying to establish even that definition within the food industry.
0: So that being said, that would mean that clean labels kind of a big deal. I mean, pretty important. So why is clean label important to you or, Pamela, more specifically to our consumers?
2: Sure. So it's still not a term that is widely represented in the consumer space. And that's where we have to do our best job of putting our consumer hat and understanding when a consumer is going to the store, like you said, right, it's, is it pretty? Is it shiny? Is, what does it mean? It's not just, oh, the packaging is clean and I can read what it says, because a lot of consumers say that in all of the surveys that we've done. It's, oh, it's clean. The package is clear. That doesn't actually mean what clean label actually is. So it still is a industry only term where consumers are beginning to be educated on what it actually means and how it's relevant for us.
0: So does that mean that consumers are kind of hesitant when it comes to certain words on their labeling like, you know, artificial or versus natural or artificial sweeteners? Does that kind of throw people for a loop when they see those kinds of things or what's the consumer's reaction to those kinds of words?
2: So artificial absolutely is a turnoff, but it's also dependent on the category because like breakfast cereals, a lot of them have artificial flavors. So it's kind of matching up your product with the overall expectation of the consumer. So if it's something that is on the fresher side and less processed, then they're looking for more natural flavors, where if it's something that's extremely processed and has fruity flavors that are more fantasy, they're not going to be expecting flavors that are natural or even ingredients that are natural.
1: That's actually been one of the most fun evolutions over the last 10 years in clean label is seeing companies that like overshot the mark, right? When you started to see those major chip brands that I will not name, they started to have those brown bags instead of the bright orange bags. And then they started removing some of the colors. So the next thing you know, you have this iconic crispy treat that no longer looks orange and no longer tastes the way it used to. And it turns out their consumers didn't really care whether or not that was artificially flavored. They just loved the way that it tasted. And so it really was off-brand and off-putting for a lot of consumers. But whereas if you're a mom and you're trying to buy healthy food for your kids for lunch, those are the consumers that are going to be much more demanding to look for these healthy ingredients, healthy and simple ingredients that are as close to or as least processed as possible.
0: So with that being said, with consumers being more aware of what's on their label, wanting to know or not, or not knowing exactly what's in something, is that... From a regulatory standpoint, is that your duty to tell them what's in that bag?
1: That's an interesting place where I would say marketing and regulatory can partner, is that we try to determine what can be said, and then marketing tries to figure out the way to say it in a way that the consumer will best understand. Because if I start talking about pictorial representations and characterizing flavors, the consumer is not going to have any idea what I'm talking about. But if you start talking about the claims that they understand or are looking for for their product, then they start connecting back to the product again. So, yeah, I would say regulatory tries to keep marketing to be not misleading. and I would say marketing tries to help regulatory be understood by consumers. They translate into consumer for us.
2: So if there's a picture of a strawberry on the front, right? it should taste like strawberry. And that's where the regulatory and the marketing come together with those regulations saying, okay, it has strawberry in the front. The expectation of the consumer is that it'll taste like strawberry.
1: Yeah. And that's where we kind of, I guess, partner with R&D also is marketing says, this is what the consumer preference would be for this product type. And regulatory says, well, this is how hard it would be to hit that expectation for that consumer claim. And then R&D kind of has to try to create a product that meets the requirements of both marketing. So it's appealing to consumers and regulatory. So it's actually legal and compliant as well. So it's almost a three-part partnership that consumers probably don't always know is happening in the background.
0: So is regulatory trying to keep marketing honest in a way?
1: (laughs) I wasn't going to say that I edited myself, but yes, I, I would say marketing tries to It's not even marketing, trying to be honest. It's the consumer desire. The consumer wants a pie-in-the-sky product that doesn't exist, that meets all of their needs and desires and doesn't have any ingredients other than what's natural and and non-processed. And honestly, we're not adding processed ingredients to processed food just for fun. We are adding these ingredients because they're functional. If we didn't need to use things like sodium benzoate to prevent food safety issues we would not use it right and so the marketing piece and the consumers i think are kind of aspirational it's kind of what they're inspired and what they want marketing's just the voice of that consumer so it's not a matter of honesty so much that it is translating the consumer desire into what's
0: actually possible and correct me if i'm wrong you're saying that you know marketing is the voice of the consumer but i also think marketing is the voice of regulatory too i mean you're putting together information probably in a, in, a, in a nice, neat package for people to understand and to accept, oh, you know, so good. as opposed to having these, you know, large formulas and whatnot markings like here, this is what you need to know about clean label about what's in this product. And I, I think that's a fabulous partnership together. So obviously, there are those out there that make clean label claims of some sort or another. What's what's your favorite clean label claim?
2: For me, it's no added sugar. I think in the past couple of years, as the Nutrition Facts panel has changed, it's kind of pulled the wool off of the consumer's eyes as well as it's that kind of like Wizard of Oz, right? That Nutrition Facts panel has always um, been what's the secret, the man behind the curtain, essentially. So it's giving consumers the opportunity to choose and understand maybe one level deeper, a little more transparency in what's actually in their product. So an example of yesterday, I had a sports beverage and I looked just for fun, like, okay, great. How many grams of sugar in this small little bottle? And it said 21 grams. And underneath it, it said 21 grams of added sugar. She's like, oh, wow. And I understand, right? Taste is what drives consumers to consume and repeat purchase. But you're like, oh man, like it's surprising a lot of the time. So Many years ago, that line item wasn't there on the Nutrition Facts panel. So giving consumers the opportunity to know what's in there, I think, is extremely important. And then they decide, one, whether they want to look for it, and two, whether it matters to them.
0: Yeah, according to the macaroni and cheese box, I'm a family of four, so having that... (laughs) honest labeling on there really helps me know that, you know, that, that I'm eating more than I probably should. Uh, But Jen, what do do you think?
1: So um, I would, I would say my favorite clean label claim is along the no artificial flavor and the no artificial colors, just because all natural is so nebulous and has no regulatory definition that it's a really risky area for both consumers and for product developers, which is interesting because consumers, I saw in our recent survey, they think they know what all natural means. And to them, that all natural is clean label. Right. And to me, all natural doesn't mean anything. It's, It's the least clear of all the different claims. So I think when you can get more specific, like no artificial flavor and no artificial color, that to me provides clarity for both the food company and the consumer. Instead of using a claim like all natural, where there's so much area to be misleading to the consumer potentially. I would love to get a food company to talk to their consumers. Okay. You understand all natural. What do you, what do you think that means to you and get them to define it? Cause I don't believe we're on the same page about things like all natural at all. And I was going to say that you were going to
2: pick organic just because it's the most regulated. Oh, I almost tribe. said
1: organic because honestly, I think those third-party claims where you've got those third-party bodies that are certified, they are so great and they are so handy that we have common regulations. However, my little hippie soul does believe that the organic claim has been misused. And so it's been watered down. Um, I, Honestly, I love it on things like eggs and and dairy products. I don't love it so much on granola or cereal bars or things that are highly processed. So it's funny, I was going to say organic, but I I have a little beef with organic.
2: And uh, like over time, as we've been tracking clean label, less and less consumers think that clean label means organic. And natural is what's rising, which is interesting. But if you think, take a step back and think about what natural means, not as it relates to food, it's easier for consumers to comprehend. and then make the connection
1: not man-made
0: right. yeah yeah and when you when you lay it out saying you know on eggs and you know things like that that makes sense absolutely I know where an egg comes from mm-hmm. you know I, I took you know kindergarten bi- biology it's yeah. not really as class but still <laughs> right. I mean even Chicken currently the egg, right, right. <laughs> and I do know which one of those came first which is another podcast in and of itself <laughs> But when I think of all natural, if you ask me to define it, in my head, I'm going Bear grills taking the witchy grub out of the tree in Africa and just eating it. He knows where it came from. He knows how it got there. And it's disgusting.
1: But- <laughs> <laughs> I love that. He knows where it came from and he knows how it got there. And I, I do think that's such a, a great way of thinking about it but they, they want more than that. They want the, they want that natural tag, which I've always had an issue with. I'm not going to do much natural bashing, but just to bash natural just for a little bit, it does feel like human exceptionalism, right? And that we are, ex, we are extraordinary. We are outside of nature so that the things we make can't be considered natural. And also natural doesn't always mean healthy or safe. So I do, I do love picking on natural. I also think that The way that food is distributed and packaged in the United States should be considered when you're looking at things like natural claims, not just what's in the plastic container, but the plastic container and the fact that it was shipped to me from Chile, for instance, should go into the thought process when it comes to these types of claims. But I am an outlier in that area. (laughs)
0: So with these claims, I'm certain that people are starting to become, much like yourselves, a little more suspicious. Mm. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm certain that they're reading the labels and actually questioning these things. But when they read the labels, are they willing to pay for these extras? Are they willing to pay for these extra claims? Is that in the price tag?
2: So some consumers are, right? Because as long as the product meets their overall expectations from a sourcing or even from a flavor, a taste expectation, or it's from a company that they trust or they're familiar with, they are willing to pay more, some mm-hmm. of them.
1: Yeah, I think there's certain premium ingredients for sure. And that's an area where if you're not cautious, you can just accidentally be misleading consumers to pay more for a product than they normally would. They look for things like eggs. They look for things like dairy and honey and maple and some of those high premium type ingredients, or or I hate the term real food, but I don't have a better term, right? Um, looking for those real food ingredients on a processed food product they are willing to pay more for those premium type ingredients. And then the other area is the authenticity piece that's so fascinating about Clean Label. So looking for something as a Madagascar vanilla instead of a Mexican vanilla or a Tahitian vanilla um, or looking at something like an Italian lemon versus a a Florida lemon, those key indicators of premium are things that the consumer is more willing to pay for.
0: So if they're more willing to pay for it, does that mean that price for them when purchasing a product, I mean, are consumers using that as their determining factor or are they now using clean label? Are they now using all natural as their, as their factor?
2: I think, like Jen said, it it depends on the category. Okay, because there are things, and it depends on how you prioritize the things that go in your pantry. So I'm willing to pay more for something that I'm feeding my son, right? Because that's important to me and him growing strong and those types of things. So that's more important. Wherever something for me, like oh, I'm I'm the biggest bargain shopper there is. <laughs> so you're like, oh, get this one, buy one get one free, or so, and. Taste, it always comes back to taste. So if he's not going to eat it, I'm not going to buy it. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter how cheap it is or how expensive it is. It
1: has to be nutritious, great tasting, and affordable. And that's, I think, really important is each consumer kind of has a decision tree in their head for the product that they're purchasing. And um, there's two people I think of. One, pet parents are willing to pay way more to buy the healthy food for their dog than they are for themselves. And they have much higher standards for their animals in many cases. But then the second group I'm thinking about are like my husband, who's a long distance runner, when he's trying to buy products for his his athletic needs. It's not price he's looking for first. It's not taste he's looking for first. It's function. And so it's really important to know your consumer because if you are trying to make a, a product for a runner that contains a large amount of fruit, because you think the clean consumer wants fruit in their product, you're going to hit the mark because he's looking for something that keeps him with sustained energy over long-term. And if it's got a high level of fruit, he's going to bonk. And he's not going to be able to run the 50 miles that he needs for that race. So I think so much of this is about that ongoing movement towards personalization and how each of us are individuals and how we all have our own needs. And that's really what the key is for nutrition is how can I get the right fit for my own personal decision tree? Mm -hmm.
2: It definitely speaks to the quality aspect of it, right? Because if we talk about the fitness space or even health and wellness, vitamins and supplements, quality over price always Mm -hmm. goes to the top because that's that you have that perceived notion that something like a supplement is already good for you. It's coming from a company that you trust. So the quality of the ingredients is your overall expectation where you're willing to pay a little bit more because it's something that's going to help you be better.
1: I love that just like a, a you know if you're looking at pharmaceutical products, you are absolutely going to buy something that's functional and safe over something that is you're, you're going to pay more for it. you're going to pay for more for it delicious tasting you know high quality safe pharmaceutical product. yeah
0: so where do we get these figures from these ideas from as far as like how do we survey people for this? is there is there a tool out there, a survey out there where we can get this kind of information what's what's that look like? What is that called?
2: we do lots of surveys in many different ways. So we primarily source um, nationwide, which is our our larger study that I did in 2020. But for this podcast, I actually use something called Suzy. It's not a person, not a fun little lady. It's actually a real-time consumer insights tool where we can go online and ask questions to consumers all over
1: the United States. It's so interesting the way that technology is influencing food trends as well, A lot of the conversations we're having right now would not have been possible 20 years ago when I started in regulatory because the computers didn't exist to store the data that you need for the incredible amount of information it takes to support these claims. Um, And then having at your fingertips the ability to just ask consumers for their opinion. I, I don't know that food companies are using this to as much as they could. And I think a lot of food companies are listening to other food companies for trends when it's actually the consumers they need to be talking to. So I love that. that That's so easily available to feed this.
0: Which definitely links us back to our last podcast, which was about artificial intelligence with Dr. Bob. Mm. Just talking about, you know, the computers and the algorithms and the storage space that's needed to get this kind of information. It's It's so interesting. It's mind boggling the kind of numbers that they're crunching and the amount of technology that they're using to kind of understand what humans thinking, feeling, you know, artistic humans Mm -hmm. are, are feeling when they eat something or when they want something. But back to this, back to the Susie, there's a lot of data coming in from all these surveys and whatnot. What do you do with all this data? Is it overwhelming? And, you know, can it be too much at some points in time?
2: So oh, for me, the data is what excites me because I see all of the data in different categories. So interpreting it not as, okay, 67% of consumers say X. It's what does this mean to our customers, to our to consumers overall, but interpreting it by category, by consumer needs state, by by end product, and helping our customers develop products that, that are going to sell and that consumers will love for years to come.
0: Now... With all this data that you're getting, does this tell you like a magic number of ingredients that should be in a product? Like, is there a, is there a you know no less than this and no more than that kind of number of ingredients in a product? Does
2: it say ten there? Five. Five. Okay.
1: <laughs> it's like I don't know. That's a year ago. You know,
2: surveys. I think it's that's done such different. a great
1: comment though. Right? <laughs> right? Is that it kind of changes.
2: One, it's, I will always say this, it is always category dependent. But when we survey consumers, we ask them the range. Usually it, it comes to around five, but that's difficult to achieve and matching the taste expectations overall. So it takes you back to think of a granola bar. Can a great tasting granola bar be achieved in five ingredients? Probably. Depends on what the ingredients are, right? So it's, but then you connect it to clean label and then you're like, ah, so that's where the demand of the consumer doesn't always meet the expectations of what is actually deliverable. It's more pie in the sky. Would I love to have a granola bar or whatever it is, only five ingredients? Sure. But it doesn't mean that it's always achievable. And that's where the industry continues to evolve and educates consumers on what is
1: actually doable to meet their needs. That's a really good point, is that a lot of the fun of this has been seeing food companies evolve to meet those demands and coming up with better solutions to these old problems. Some of these ingredients were invented in the 1970s, 1950s in some cases, and we've never had a push to revolutionize and modernize these ingredients. The consumers are expecting that we do better, and the the food industry is really working on doing better. It's really cool
0: if you ever get a chance, there's a really cool cookbook out there. It's like 1940s depression era cookbook. And it's basically taking almost, you know, what you're able to get and what you have and making something out of it. There's a guy that actually does TikToks about this. And the names of these products are like uh, potato cake, which doesn't sound like it works together. And then he makes it and he tastes it. And he's like, that was actually really good. That's so super cool. I mean, I'm telling you, like, all the, all these like videos and whatever, you know, it's, I, I don't even know the name of the cookbook, but something to, to consider. So we've got all these ingredients and we want our sellers to be more active, I would say in the creation of the, of what they want in their products. Right. So there's gotta be like a, they're probably starting to put out like banned lists, you know, like saying, yes, you can have this in our product or no, you can't have this in our product. What is, what does that look like? How does that affect what goes out to the consumer?
1: What the interesting thing about those no-no lists is they are both a reaction to the trend, but also a creation of the trend. So they are reacting in that um, they say, okay, consumers do not want, for instance, trans fats in their finished products. However, they're also creating the expectation for consumers by adding ingredients that the consumers have never even heard of to that list, or adding ingredients that the consumer was like, actually, I was okay with xanthan gum. Just because it starts with an X doesn't mean I don't understand what it is. And so it has evolved over time. There's also been some ridiculous responses to it. There is a grocer who shall not be named who created a no-no list by aggregating all of the no-no lists of the other grocers. Well, they accidentally made a typo when they typed the list up, and they banned vanilla. (laughs) They banned vanilla from their own products. Still has not been fixed. But what they meant was artificial vanillin. A lot of companies don't like seeing artificial vanillin listed on the ingredient statement on your back panel. However, surprise, some consumers are perfectly fine with it seeing on the back of a chocolate bar. That is where vanillin officially started getting called out and it was fine. And so it, it has continued to evolve, but it has gotten a little ridiculous at the same time. And we're
2: seeing way less press on no no lists than we ever did before. It's almost like they kind of disappeared, right? Because it was they were so prevalent a couple of years ago when we started doing our, um, our surveys. And now it's like, you don't even hear about it. Like you're not seeing commercials for restaurants, having clean ingredients or those types of things. It's kind of gone in the background. Not that they've gone away. It's just, there's less. Got maxed out.
1: Right. It gets saturated. You can't, you can't differentiate by adding another ingredient to a 300 ingredient list. Right. Be like, oh, we're actually more conservative than so-and-so. It doesn't work at some point. Some consumers just stop reading the lists.
0: (laughs) So I'm going to reach back here because I I heard something that was really kind of fiery from Jen, like, which is totally unexpected. Wink. But I want to know what's the difference between organic and natural. Mm. So there's like, I, I mean, I know that, you know, organic to me kind of insinuates produce of some sort. Mm-hmm. And I mean, but I don't know where to draw the line between organic and natural. No,
1: I I, I agree. Organic is kind of a starting point. So natural has only actually been defined by the FDA in regards to natural flavor. And so really natural is a really risky place make any sort of product claims because there is no definition of natural and these days when when consumer groups or third parties or um, legal entities can test your product and identify that it contains specific ingredients down to the part per million or part per billion um, natural it, it continues to be risky that being said organic is always at the state of the art so not everything that can be used in food is available in organic form. And so there is a list of allowed synthetics on the organic list. So organic doesn't always mean natural either, but it is is—it is a really good starting point to support that claim, but it, it doesn't go the distance when it comes to the complete natural claim. But natural is is really hard to define. It is really hard to nail down everything from what was the source of the water that you used. And I hope that water was treated and treatment chemicals are typically synthetic. So either you're using treated water that was healthy for food products or you're using water that contains synthetic materials. It's, it's kind of a lose-lose for food product manufacturers and continues to be a little difficult that the consumers are, are demanding it. And those consumers that are really looking
2: for those products that fit within that small scope are few and far between. Because if those consumers actually wanted that, they would be growing their own food. Yes, eat and an apple. Exactly. Like they're <laughs> growing all their own, own things mm-hmm. to fit within that niche market. But it doesn't mean that the average consumer average mom or dad in that, in that case isn't researching and reading the labels and looking for having preferred organic or even natural, even though they fully don't understand what it means.
1: There is some interesting things where when people say what they want to buy versus what you see that they're actually buying, right? So the self-reported trends versus the actual purchase patterns can be very different, who we aspire to be versus who we actually are, right?
2: Or who we want consumers, who Mm. we want others to think we are, are. right? Mm -hmm. It's that overall perception, which is hard.
0: Mm -hmm. So I'm going to break away from the natural, organic, on the label, off the label. And I'm going to talk tech a little bit, uh, at least tech from my perspective. I'm, I'm going to talk about social media and clean label. What is social media doing with clean label these days? So for example, I'm always reading people's tweets that are like, hey, go vegan. I'm totally vegan. It makes my lifestyle sound wonderful. And that's the voice I hear in my head. If you actually do sound like that, I mean, great. But in my head, that's what you sound like. Um, So how do you how do you tweet something like that or promote something like that and not sound condescending? Like I'm, you know, I'm trying to push this new health product, you're gonna get buff ripped faster, you know, whatever, you know, but it, it always sounds fake to me. I mean, I think that's that's a hard line to walk. You know, how do you how do you push something that's good for you and clean label? without sounding condescending or judgy. Yeah.
2: So a lot of companies are hiring influencers. So they're sending their product to them to use and taste and then push on social media saying, oh, how great this product tastes. And it fits within my lifestyle in the hope that the people that are following them are similar to them. And like, oh, Jenna said, mm-hmm. "Why, why wouldn't I buy it too? Right? Like I'm like her. She likes it. Why wouldn't I? So it's easier. So they're using influencers to help, kind of guide consumers to their section of the grocery store.
0: Yes, influencers are definitely important. One of the big ones out there right now is is Lizzo, and she's got this. I don't really want to call it a challenge or whatever. We initially mentioned about you know putting fruit in in ice water or oat milk or whatever it was, and people going crazy about that. Well, now she's got a new one where you get watermelon and put yellow mustard on it so we have another individual in the room that you guys don't hear from uh it's sarah hyken our, our production manager is what i'll call her and she's actually tried this fa- this what do we call this this fad so sarah why don't, you, why don't you tell us what your experience was with that
2: okay so i love watermelon and i not a big fan of yellow mustard but i wanted to try it because everybody was doing it and it's actually not that bad my fiance loved it. He actually went back for seconds. So Ugh. it's I don't know what it is about the sweet, refreshing watermelon with mustard. I can't describe what it tasted like, but I think that everyone should try it.
1: I feel like it's dependent <laughs> on dose. How much mustard are
0: we talking? I mean,
2: I did watermelon? I tried to do like
1: a fancy drizzle. So okay. like think like a about a couple
2: of lines. Yeah. Okay. Not a heavy drizzle, Not like too more heavy. like, yeah. Like
0: Ooh. I mean, I've heard of people putting salt on watermelon. Pamela's raising her hand. Uh, you know, which increases the sweetness. I'm not a watermelon fan. Um, our listeners don't know this uh, by the look of me, but you could definitely tell that I don't eat a lot of watermelon. But yeah, I mean, you could put salt on it and, and I guess, does it make it taste better? Is that...
1: I can tell that this should, this needs a follow-up from a flavor chemist at some point saying like, what is it about those two flavors that are either congruent or opposite that make them, Bob Sobel would probably be like, there's this active ingredient in salt that does, uh, it makes your mouth water. And when you add it to these fi- these products, yeah. He it, probably knows exactly why. It definitely adds juiciness when you said that. Mm. It's like the
2: something about the mustard, definitely. The tartness. Like, yeah. mouth mm-hmm. It makes your mouth water a little bit more. I don't know mm. if
0: I'm going to try this. I mean, your Bob Sobel impression on point. <laughs> on point. <laughs> I do
1: spend a lot of time with him. He's awesome. You know what? Every time he talks, I find out something new. I just, every time he's picked up facts, even though I've seen him present thousands of times, I always learn something new.
0: And that's actually a really good reason to go back and listen to our other podcasts mm-hmm. too, because that man drops knowledge, you know, yes. like like crazy. You gotta listen to him talk. It's mm-hmm. awesome. We've talked about marketing and Lizzo. I mean, as we should, mm-hmm. but how do we know that we can trust these people? Like, how do we become the company that the consumer can trust? How do we know that we can trust these clean labels? You know, what is marketing or what is regulatory doing that? can convince me as a consumer to trust your company?
2: So I think when you talk about companies and trust, it goes back to do you do essentially what you say you were going to do, right? Your products are not misleading. You're, You're being honest in what's in the products, and that will go a long way with consumers. Because as soon as we talked about social media, as soon as you take one false step, you've lost the trust of consumers and you've created a buzz that isn't necessarily positive. So being a brand or a company that consumers can trust to do the right thing is extremely important, especially when it comes to clean label.
0: Also, I do not trust Lizzo anymore because I will not be eating that.
1: <laughs> She's lost my trust as it's well. It's gone,
0: yep. it's gone. Okay, so if that's how we become the trusted name brand, so to speak, or a trusted name in the industry, if we lose step, if we fall off that razor's edge, how do we get back up?
2: It's all about educating the consumers. They don't know what they don't know. So being there are not a lot of brands or even companies out there that go that one step further to Talk about what's in their products, right? It's that the Wizard of Oz notion behind it. So be the first one out there to say, yes, these are the ingredients in here. A couple of years ago, there was a can of soup. Jen talked about xanthan gum, right? Right on the back label, it said exactly what it did, right? It it helps thicken the soup, right? Give you that overall creamy mouthfeel that consumers are looking for. So be transparent. Don't be afraid. Be transparent because you will build the trust of consumers more than you'll ever know.
0: So let's round this out. Let's talk about your key takeaways. What is it, you know, maybe two or three things that we should leave people with after this podcast about clean labels? Let's start from the regulatory side. What are two or three things about clean label that we should take away?
1: I would recommend you get to know your consumer in your segment and ask them the key questions about if you have five claims you're going to choose, not 35 claims, what are those five claims? And then identify whether or not those claims can be certified by a third party. I do think those third party certifications build trust because they have the claims built right into the certification process. And then just be very cautious about the ones you put on
2: the front. Put on your consumer hat and don't be afraid to ask consumers what it is that they're looking for. You, the best way to create a successful product is to ask them and then you can rightfully meet their expectations around taste, around claims, around price. What is it that they're looking for? And then you just deliver on their overall expectations. It sounds sounds easy when you say it, right? And we, we know that, but you partner with your flavor company, partner with your co-man's, partner
1: with those um, companies that want to make you successful. And I don't think it always has to be a million people, right? We've had a lot of powerful conversations with just five shoppers. And what do those five shoppers do? And what are their behaviors? And how do they make their choices? Even if you can just talk to five of your consumers who love your brand, you will get so much insightful information from them.
2: As well as educating them, right? That's the other piece around it. Like educate consumers, be the brand that they can trust, and they'll be loyal.
0: All right. Thank you so much, you guys. That was really good, really insightful. But we're going to finish it out with the less insightful couple of questions, quick fire answers here. Um, You guys have been here before, so I'm not going to ask you the same ones that we've already had before. Um, And if you've memorized ones, I'm sorry.
2: (laughs) My favorite flavor is vanilla.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You changed it from last time. No, I'm kidding. All right. So let's, Jen, let's start with you. We, we talked about clean label mm-hmm. and, you know, we may feed something to our children that, you know, we wouldn't eat ourselves or vice versa. So let's, let's talk about something that you would eat but would not feed to your family.
1: Ooh, something I would eat that I would not feed to my family. Um
0: Due to what's on the label.
1: Yeah. So I am totally a sneaky Domino's eater when everyone's out of the house and no one's going to witness me i will order the dominoes and that garlic sauce i don't know what's in it and i really don't care i will dip everything in that garlic sauce if i run out of pizza i start dipping other things than that garlic sauce so now everyone knows what my guilty secret is i will definitely overconsume Domino's dominoes when there's no one watching
0: you heard it here first you guys hold on to those little Domino's garlic cups and leave them at jen's mm, desk for her so good Delicious. Delicious. Okay. So that out of the way, this one should be a little easier. What is your favorite front of the package label? A label that when you see it, just got to have that. That's, I I enjoy that picture. I'm going to buy it.
1: Ooh, one that like I really like. Mm. Um, local. I love local products. I will pay premium for local, hands down, every single time. Um, we've gotten to the point in the U.S. where if you can, we are really fortunate to have an amazing local food supply. And I understand not everyone does, and so I will appreciate it as much as I could possibly can. There is a honey that's grown locally out here. I swear it tastes more delicious than anything I've ever had.
0: Absolutely true. Absolutely. Much like everyone else, we want to support local as much as we can, keep mm-hmm. those businesses going, just, you know, giving us that good, clean sourced material or food or product or whatever. Yeah, whatnot. you get it. So, Pamela, your turn. Same questions. Hopefully you got something for me. Let's Let's reverse it. What would you feed your kids that you won't eat?
2: Oh gosh lots of vegetables I make him eat but I like them too <laughs> surprisingly a few ads. so we went to a restaurant and they asked would you like french fries or steamed broccoli and he said broccoli That's I awesome. thought the waitress like her jaw dropped like uh who is who is this boy I love that but so he's a little more willing um he wasn't used to be an extremely picky eater where it was pancakes and waffles and blueberries <laughs> now he's expanded to raspberries obviously broccoli um but we both have crazy sweet tooth. So I've become like a closet sweet tooth eater, especially in the past year when we're spending so much time together, right? You have to hide the bite of the cookie or he did in my office because we limit the sweets because that's all he would eat. Yeah,
0: yeah, we're we're at the same phase right now, you know, what's what's mine is hers and what's hers is hers too. So, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, we're we're in the middle of potty training, so mini oreos have become the thing to have. So, every time we have a successful venture to the restroom, we don't just get one. We get two because we have two hands. So, clearly you need two oreos, oh, one for that. each hand. We need
2: M&Ms are much smaller.
0: Yeah, yeah. We should we not should.
2: anymore, it's too late can't go back. No,
0: she's expecting cookies. What You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I can only go bigger. I can't go smaller. <laughs> All right. So, Pamela, what is your favorite front of the package label, a label that you see in the store and you're just like, that's a very flashy, catchy label that I I enjoy?
2: So similar to Jen, but I'll expand it. Mine's made in the USA. So especially in pet food, that's something that we always look for and it definitely connects to safety. But anything that's made in the Grand old United States is Mm -hmm. something that we'd like to support as well.
0: Awesome. All right, well, thank you both very much. That's it for Fona's Flavor University podcast. I'm Corey Doucette, and I'd like to thank our special guests, Pamela Oscarson and Jennifer Howell. Thanks again for coming out, and thank you for listening. And until next time, the flavor of Fona is the flavor of life. So go out and taste it.